Jesus' mighty name, amen. Hallelujah. Good morning, Lake Church. Well, we can do better than that. Good morning, Lake Church. Hallelujah. We are grateful, and I want to hold my wife's hand here. You know, today is what the Bible calls a karyos moment. It's an appointed moment. It's a moment in which God has met us in a very specific and unique way. And um, this moment is not lost on Karen and I because we have long prayed for Rick and Denise to be with us. And uh, they have been invaluable to us. You know, the Bible says that uh, how blessed are the feet that come and bring good tidings of great things. And um, I have to tell you, there are ministry gifts that impart to your life, and not just impart, but set a tone and set a standard for ministry. And what you're about to receive today is exactly that. I'm grateful for R.W. Shambach, who preached. Karen rededicated her life. I gave my life to the Lord. We were forever changed. Grateful for Brother Hagen. We heard him almost right after, and what an impartation he was. And then God ran us into a man by the name of David Emi, who became our father in the faith, and we're so grateful. And God brought us into connection with Bob Yandian, who we just love tremendously and who has been a great impartation into our life. But this man today, we're so grateful for what he has done in our lives, directly and indirectly, through his writings, through his books, through his teaching. He has always set the tone and set the standard. And if you look at Greg Hurd, if you think anything about me, you can just see that I'm an amalgam of all these different personalities because they have imparted to me such great wisdom. And I am grateful. And I believe we need to set the tone by operating in a kingdom principle called honor. Because the Lord values honor. And we honor you, Rick and Denise. And we thank you so much for being a part of our lives and for paying the price because your model has been a model that Karen and I have strove to live by, and we thank you so much. Let's give Rick Renner a warm welcome as he comes up here. Yes. Wow. He's always been just like that. What a wonderful man. We were counting. We have known your pastors for about 30 years, and I'm telling you, if God can do this in Manford, this is amazing. This is amazing. And it really speaks not just about the quality of your congregation, but it really speaks about the gift of God that is in you. And I just want to honor that as well, Greg. And I have to recognize several people that are here. First of all, my beautiful wife, Denise. Denise, would you stand? Seated next to her is our youngest son, Joel Renner, who's the CEO of our ministry. Seated next to him is Maxim Miesnikov, who is my assistant in Moscow. Maxim, would you stand? Seated next to Maxim is John and Rhonda Roush. Rhonda is my sister. So would you two stand? And then on the second row, we have Leela. Everybody knows Leela. And Leela's been our assistant for two years. Seated next to her is Beth, who was my assistant for 17 years. Now she's in the editorial department. Becky Gilbert, who has worked with us for 13 years and for five years as our senior editor. And believe me, she has a lot to edit. And seated next to her is Lynn Scott, who has masterfully handled our travel, I think, for 25 or 30 years. That's a big job. And I have to also just recognize David Kennedy. Does everybody know David Kennedy? 
I grew up with David Kennedy. And, you know, we have a home group. I don't know if any of you have ever seen our home group online. David Kennedy is online every single time we have a home group. And I'm always reading his comments because he's a Kennedy and he's very close to my heart. But, hey, Denise and I are so glad to be here. Last week I spoke at Eagle Mountain Church in Fort Worth. That's Kenneth and Gloria Copeland's church. Then I spoke at their conference. But this is really my first church meeting on this trip to the United States. And we're just so blessed to be here and to be with your pastors. You know, for years and years and years, way, way back when in Sand Springs, I would look at him and I would think, this man is such a gift to David Emai. <laughs> Greg has always just been a pillar of strength. He's exactly today who he was then. And you know, that's okay because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Isn't it good when you find somebody that you can always count on to be the same? I also want to recognize the Craigs who used to pastor in Yale. They were our partners for years and years. We're so glad to see you. But hey, do you have your Bibles? Hold your Bible up in the air. You should always bring, oh, wonderful, wonderful to see all those Bibles. All right. Today, if it's all right with you, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. And I want to say that on our book table back there, there is just one book. It's called Dream Thieves, Overcoming Obstacles to Fulfill Your Dreams, and you cannot buy it. We brought them to give away. So everybody pick one up on your way out. There's enough for everybody. And we just wanted to bless you with a book today. But Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for today. We thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, today, I ask you to take us into the scriptures until we feel them. And we're changed by them. And we thank you for this. Holy Spirit, you're the one that authored this word. You're really the only one that has the authority to teach it. And so today we look to you as the great teacher. I ask you to speak through me. I ask you to teach me. I ask you to teach everyone that is in this room that when we leave here today, we would have been changed by the word of God. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 5. I've changed what I'm going to teach. Joel, would you please take that? I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. John chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. If I could have just a little bit more sound, it would be good for me. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You'll often notice that in the scriptures, that it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There's a simple reason for that. The elevation of Jerusalem was higher than the rest of Israel. So Jesus is literally traveling up to Jerusalem. And verse 2 says, Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Well, if you entered the city of Jerusalem from the side of the Mount of Olives, you entered a gate, which today is called the Lion's Gate. And the reason it's called the Lion's Gate is because there's a lion carved into the top of that gate. It's actually the same gate where Stephen was stoned for his faith. He was the first martyr of the church. But if you walk through that great gate, you enter onto an ancient road, which today is called the Via Della Rosa. How many of you have heard the Via Della Rosa? And that part of the Via Della Rosa runs on the backside of the temple. And it was very unusual for anybody to enter through that gate because it was not the main path that people used to go to the temple grounds. It would be very unusual that someone would come to that part of the temple mount unless you had a very specific reason to be there. And what is amazing is today when you go to Jerusalem, you see hundreds and even thousands of tourists walking on the Via Della Rosa, walking to the Pool of Bethesda, walking right past something very important, not even knowing that it is there. All of them are walking past a building, and if they would stop long enough to look, they would see a plaque on the side of the building that states, in the very bottom of that building is an ancient first century home where the mother of the Virgin Mary was born. 
And I've been down all those steps into the very bottom. In the very bottom of that building, there really is a first or pre-first century house. And that's where Mary's grandparents lived. Now we know why Jesus was in that part of the city on that day. He did not come to go to the pool of Bethesda. He came there. The only reason he would have come there was if he came to see his grandparents because it was off the beaten track. How many of you have ever thought about the fact that Jesus had grandparents? He had grandparents. Joseph's parents lived in Jerusalem. Mary's parents lived in Jerusalem. Jesus lived in Nazareth, but he was making regular trips over to the city of Nazareth to see his grandparents who lived there. But on this particular day, he came to see his great-grandparents. And when Jesus came out of their home, he began to walk further down the, what today is called the Via Della Rosa. And there on the right was a pool, which was called the sheep's pool, or the King James Version calls it the sheep gate. It's very large. And this is where they would wash the sheep before they would take them into the temple to be sacrificed. But right next to that pool, there was a secondary pool. And that pool was very, very luxurious. And that's what the Bible now describes in this verse. And let me tell you about the pool of Bethesda. First of all, notice the King James Version says it was called the pool of Bethesda in the Hebrew tongue. A better translation would be it was nicknamed. This was not the real name of the pool. The original name of the pool was the Virgin's Well. And the reason it was called the Virgin's Well is because at the bottom of this well, there was a spring of water, and it was reputed to be the most crystal clear, clean water in the entire city of Jerusalem. It was like virgin water, so they referred to it as the Virgin's Well. And in fact, in the city of Jerusalem, there are only several sources of water. Water is not very abundant in the city of Jerusalem. But when the intelligentsia of Jerusalem, which primarily was comprised of the Jewish priesthood, the priests were not just religious, they were educated and they were very, very rich. And they viewed themselves as being a cut above everyone else. And indeed, they really were. They actually read Hebrew. Do you realize by the time of the New Testament, Hebrew was no longer spoken among the common people of Israel. Two centuries before the time of Jesus, Hebrew had been abandoned and the people of Israel spoke Greek. But the Jewish priests had maintained the Hebrew language much in the same way that the Catholic Church used Latin after everybody else stopped using Latin. And they were very educated. They were very affluent. They were very rich. And this well was located just across the road from the backside of the temple. And when they discovered it, they said, Eureka! We want this for us. And they begin to develop the property around this virgin's well. And they claimed it for themselves. And they begin to develop what we today might call a country club for the elite and for the rich. No one else was allowed there. And at first, they built a pool. In fact, if you read this text, it says there was a pool called Bethesda. The word pool is the Greek word kalambrethra. The word kalambrethra is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used to describe the pool of Siloam. Well, today the pool of Siloam is being excavated. So if you go to look at the pool of Siloam, which is a kalambrethra, then you're going to know exactly what the pool of Bethesda first looked like. It was what I would call a cement pond. Now, how many of you remember watching the Beverly Hillbillies? What do they have in their backyard? They had a cement pond. Do you remember all those columns that were around that pool and how luxurious it was? Well, the priesthood and the elite of Jerusalem begin to develop this property. And they begin to hollow out the ground. Then they brought in marble. They begin to line the bottom, line the sides. Then they begin to pour the pavement and lay stones. And not just stones, but beautiful, beautiful mosaics. And when the priesthood was finished serving on the temple grounds, they would walk across the street privately into their territory that most people didn't even know about. It was their secret club where they would swim in those wonderful, cool waters. And they said, hey, this is not enough. We need to be able to eat here. So they begin to build porticos around this property. First, they built one. 
It was a stoa. The word stoa is a Greek word which describes a columned structure with a terracotta roof. Underneath it, there would have been fabulous, fabulous mosaics on the floor. It would be like walking on works of art. And on the wall behind, it was not just plaster, but it was plaster which was covered with all kinds of frescoes. And while some were swimming in the water and enjoying themselves, the others were sitting under that covered colonnade, that store where they were eating by the servants who brought them their food. And because so many elite people kept coming to this place, they then added a second covered colonnade, then they added a third, then a fourth, and a fifth. And this is very important to this story. Because this body of water was completely surrounded by roofs which meant it was not possible for wind to blow on this body of water and to cause a stirring of the water like you read in this text. That simply was physically impossible because it was protected on every side by roofs. But by the time that we come to John chapter 5, verse 1, it's no longer called the virgin's well, but it's called what? Bethesda. Everybody say Bethesda. The word Bethesda means several things, and this is very important. It can be translated the house of grace. So something there happened by an act of God's grace. It could be translated as the house of goodness. So something very good was happening in this place. Or it could be translated as the house of mercy. God was pouring out his mercy in this place. Well, here's what happened to the virgin's well. As time went by, the well, which the spring, which was in the bottom of this pool, began to dry up. And as it began to dry up, the water turned distasteful. It was horrible. It was mucky. You have to remember that Israel's very, very hot. Well, hey, we're in the state of Oklahoma. What happens to those little pools, little ponds out in the countryside that has no outlet for water to flow out of them? In the hottest season of the year. Nobody really wants to swim in one of those ponds. Because they're pretty disgusting. They grow all kinds of green stuff. I remember when I was a kid growing up with Jerry Dale Crawford. I don't know if any of you knew the Crawfords. But he and I used to take a seine. And we would seine those ponds in the Oklahoma countryside. And one day Jerry Dale said, let's go swim. And he dove up. And when he came up the other side, he was just slimed. I said, there's no way I'm getting into that water. Well, that's what happened to this pool. The water turned green. The water was disgusting. And the rich people said, this place is no longer worthy of who we are. And they abandoned it. And when they abandoned it, it was turned into the equivalent of a hospital. A hospital. And they began to bring sick people to this place. Sick people. Piles and piles and piles of sick people. And it was the sick people who renamed it. And they called it Bethesda, the house of goodness, the house of grace, the house of mercy. Because from time to time, God would pour out miracle, merciful miracles in that place. And now this place has become so well known that the sick are coming there from all over the land of Israel. Now, that's the background to the pool of Bethesda. How many of you have already learned something today? You learned that Jesus had grandparents. But let's continue. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was a Jerusalem by the sheep market, literally right next to the sheep market, a pool, Calimbrethra, a cement pond, which is called or nicknamed in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, the house of mercy, the house of goodness, the house of grace, having five porches. It is completely surrounded by roofs. And in these, verse 3, that is in these five covered colonnades, in these porticos lay a great multitude of impotent folks. Well, how many were there? And we know the answer for that because of the word lay. The word lay is the Greek word katechemai. The word kemai means to lay. The word first part of the word is the preposition kata. It describes sick people laid so thick in this place that it was nearly like sardines in a can. It was one sick person on top of another sick person on top of another sick person. How many of you have ever seen how alligators or crocodiles lay? They're just all piled on top of each other. Well, that's what this looked like. And if we had peeked into the pool of Bethesda, 
We had seen so many sick people in this place that in reality, there was not room for all of them. They were even laying on top of each other. And then verse 3 describes the category of sick people which were there. And first it says, impotent folk, which is the Greek word asthenio. The word asthenio describes someone so frail that they are what we would call a shut-in or a homebound person. They're not physically able to be carried to see a doctor. If they needed to see a doctor, a doctor would have to come to them. So really you could translate this. Invalids, shut-ins, those that are homebound, those that are so physically weak, they do not have the ability to be transported. Then it says blind. And the word blind is the Greek word tuflos. It doesn't just describe a person who can't see. It's also the word which describes a person who has no eyes to see. It's the same word which is used by the apostle Paul in second Corinthians chapter four, when Paul writes, the God of this world has what blinded the eyes of unbelievers and they can't see, which explains why when you try to share Christ with somebody and they don't seem to see what you're saying, they don't have spiritual eyes. And it is the preaching of the gospel that creates eyes in the head of a sinner. And that's why if we keep our mouth shut, they're never going to see. But when you first begin to share with them, they may not see because spiritually they don't have eyes to see. But it's the sharing of the gospel that creates eyes for them to see. Isn't that powerful? But in this particular case, the Bible says the blind, those who just couldn't see, and those who did not have eyes to see. And by the way, it was considered that the healing of the blind to be the greatest of all miracles. That was the greatest of all miracles in the first century. But then it says, the halt. The word halt is actually a Greek word which describes those that have been maimed in some kind of an accident. Maybe they've lost an arm in an agricultural accident. They've lost a leg. In some way, they've been maimed, and they're missing a part of their body. And then finally, it mentions the withered. What does that mean, the withered? Well, newer translations translate that as the word paralyzed. That's a very bad translation. Let me give you the Greek word. The Greek word withered is zero. That is the word. These were people who had nothing to contribute to society. And in fact, they were such zeros in society that they were called useless eaters. No reason to feed them. They have nothing to contribute. They're never going to get out of here. And the mind of the world, these were the zeros of the world. And now, in this pool, which is infested with all kinds of disease, the waters have turned green. I want you to try to imagine this. All around this body of stinking, filthy, disgusting water, so many sick people that are piled on top of each other, invalids, homebound, those that have no eyes, those that are maimed, the zeros of the world are all gathered in this place. Isn't that amazing? Let's continue. It says, in these, in these five covered colonnades, laid a great multitude of impotent folks. And then again, it says, blind, halt, withered. And what were they doing? They were waiting. Everybody say waiting. The word waiting is actually the Greek word ekdekomai, which means their expectation was out completely. They were waiting for something to happen. All of them were laying there with their eyes fixed on the water, which means, strangely, they are all laying in one direction. All of them laying there with their eyes fixed on the water. And the explanation for this is in verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, went down as the Greek word katabino. Just like you walk down a set of stairs, it meant from certain times to certain times, an angel literally stepped down, like walking down steps into this pool and troubled the water. The word troubled is very important because the word troubled is the form of the Greek word terrasso, which means to fiercely, fiercely agitate. Even if the wind had been able to hit the water, it would not have created this kind of movement. But we know this movement was not caused by wind because no wind could hit the water. But the word terrasso describes such an agitation of water that it really pictures suddenly, suddenly, 
The water begins spinning and spinning and spinning ferociously, fiercely agitated until now the water is beginning to slap out the sides of the pool and the water is turning and turning and turning in the same kind of emotion when you pull the plug out of the bottom of your bathtub. The water is moving in a circular motion. Well, of course, there's no natural explanation for that. Even if the wind had hit the water, it would not have created that kind of movement. And the sick people believed it was an angel who had stepped into the water. And they believed that whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Well, this was a misunderstanding of what was taking place. God had literally created an environment where people could get healed. Remember, this was before the cross. Now, after the cross, we have a different way of receiving healing. But people before the cross couldn't look to the cross. They couldn't say, by the stripes of Jesus, I'm healed, because there had been no stripes of Jesus. So God created a situation where something miraculous would take place, and it would cause the faith of the people to rise. Now, the truth was, They could have all been healed, but they misunderstood. They thought there was something magic in the water. But God is not a magician. God was creating an environment where their faith would rise. And if they would release their faith, they could all be healed. But they wrongly thought it was just whoever first was into the pool. They didn't understand it was about faith. They thought it was about magic. And so they missed their healing. Think how many people you know who are wrongly informed about healing power and they miss what God wants to do to them. And if they've just been properly instructed, they could receive what God wants to give them. So now they're all laying on their sides. They've all got their face focused on this dirty pool of water, waiting for the troubling of the water. And verse 4 also says, That they believed whosoever stepped in would be made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Guess what the word whole is? The word whole is the Greek word hygies. It's where we get the word for hygiene or that which is hygienic. But the Greek word really means to get your life back again. Or a little translation would be they would believe that whosoever first was into the water would get his life back again. It's a picture of a life fully restored. And he would be healed or made whole of whatsoever disease he had. The word had is the Greek word echo. The Greek word echo describes, you could translate it to have, to hold, to possess. But really it describes something that has its grip on you. It's holding you down. It is suppressing you. And indeed these sick people, their lives had been put on pause. And now they were in the grip of their infirmity. Verse 5. And a certain man was there. If I were you, I would circle those words, certain man. Every time you read those words in the gospel, there was a certain woman, there was a certain man, there was a certain person. That means when this gospel was written, that person was still alive and everybody knew who this individual was. It's the equivalent of saying, hey, there was a certain man. And by the way, we all know who I'm talking about. They could have gone and they could have interviewed him about this story. He was still alive at the moment. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity. Again, the word had, the Greek word echo, it held him. It suppressed him. He had an infirmity. The word infirmity here, the Greek word asthenios, he was homebound. He was a shut-in. He was so frail he could not be transported. And there was a certain man which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. 30 and 8 years. Now, that does not mean that he'd been laying in the pool for 38 years. But at some point in his sickness, he heard that there was a miraculous place in Jerusalem called the house of grace, the house of goodness, the house of mercy. And from time to time, miraculous things would take place in that location. So he must have said to his family, to his parents, and to those who loved him, I'm leaving the house, and I'm going to Jerusalem. Well, this already tells us something about this man. First of all, he really wanted to be healed. 
Because no one in their right mind would leave the comfort of their home to go lay around a dirty, stinking pool with a bunch of other sick people. And I'm sure that his parents or his family probably said, please don't do this. Don't leave the comfort of your home. If you're here, we can take care of you. But against all of that, he made the choice. He was going to go there because he heard it was a place where God's goodness was poured out and maybe he would be the next one to receive a miracle. But on the day that Jesus walked into this place, this man had been laying in the pool of Bethesda for years and years and years and years. He came there in faith. And over the years, he's seen one of his neighbors get healed and he's seen another sick person get healed and another sick person. And in fact, he could have written a book. It would have been a bestseller called The Miracles of Bethesda. He had seen it all. But he's still waiting. How many of you know somebody who's been believing God for a miracle or a special touch? And they've waited and waited and waited and waited. It's never happened. Well, the Bible says hope deferred does what? Makes the heart sad. And eventually a sadness begins to come on people. And they begin to accept their lot in life. That God does good things for other people. But God does not do good things for me. And that explains verse 6. When Jesus saw him lie. And knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto him, wilt thou be made whole? But notice it says Jesus saw him. That word saw the Greek word hareo, which means to make a scrutinizing look. To make a scrutinizing look. And the Bible says Jesus saw him lie. So you assume that Jesus was recognizing that physically he was laying down. But there's one thing you have to know about Jesus. Jesus never just looks at your exterior. Jesus is making a scrutinizing, penetrating look. And when Jesus' eyes fixed on this man, Jesus could see not only was he physically laying down, but inwardly, this man was down. He was out. He had given up hope. Jesus always took a penetrating view of people. This is why when you counsel people, it's very important that you look at their physical posture. It's very important. A person whose physical posture is all bent over, it is a reflection of an inward condition. Denise and I learned this lesson when we first moved to the Soviet Union 31 years ago. Can you believe it's been 31 years? Now we're all Russian citizens. Wow, thank you, Jesus. But when we first moved to that part of the world, we lived in a little town called Yelgava. It was in the Republic of Latvia. But whether it was Yelgov or Riga or anywhere else we went, people were all hunched over. They were all doubled over. I'm not necessarily just talking about old people. They were all bent over, walking with canes. Well, these were people who had lived under the oppression of communism for 70 years. And inwardly, they had given up their hope. And you could see it in their physical form. But you know today, if you come to Russia, you don't see people like that anymore. They're gone. You know why? Because hope came to the nation. Things got better. And when things got better, people began standing up straight again. But back in those days, you could physically see the effect of oppression in the way that people walked. Denise, I remember that one little lady in Yelgava. Bless her heart. So she looked like the hunchback of Notre Dame, but there was really nothing wrong with her except that inwardly she was oppressed and her body was a reflection of it. Well, Jesus never just looks at the outside. He's always taking a penetrating look to determine the interior of a person. And in fact, he taught this to his disciples. You can see an example of this in Acts chapter 3 when the Bible says Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer and they saw a lame man who was laid at the gate beautiful every day asking alms of them that entered into the temple. Do you remember what the Bible says Peter and John did? What does it say? They fastened their eyes on him. That is not what the Greek says. The Greek word is the word ice. It literally means they fastened their eyes into him before they ever looked at his outward condition. First, they were looking into that man to determine what was his spiritual condition. They learned that from Jesus. And now Jesus walks into this place 
And I want you to understand there were so many sick people in this place. For him to get to this one man, Jesus was stepping over people in order to get to him. Now, what about all those other people? Well, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that if Jesus has his heart on touching you, he's going to step over everybody in order to get to you. And when Jesus finally got there, he could see that not just physically, but inwardly, this man was lying down. And Jesus saith unto him, that's what the King James Version says, Wilt thou be made whole? The word whole is the same word, hugies. A better translation would literally be, would you like to have your life back again? How many people do you know who have said, Lord, I want my life back again? And Jesus asked him that question. It wasn't just about physical wellness. Jesus was talking about his whole life. Do you want to be healed? Hugies, do you want your life back again? Which is a very strange question to ask a person that has left his home, who's come all the way to this filthy, dirty, stinking water, taking his place among other people, and he's been laying there for years and years and years and years and years, waiting for the moving of the water, hoping that he can get in first. Obviously, he wants to be well. So why did Jesus ask him this question? Well, Jesus really did not say, do you want to be healed? He said, do you want your life back? That's a lot better, bigger than just feeling better. If he gets his life back again, it means he's going to have to leave the pool of Bethesda. He can't stay there. Well, he's been there, let's say, 30 years. Those are all his friends. If he gets his life back, he can't continue to lay there like he is a sick person. He's got to get up. He's got to get moving, which means he's going to have to leave those friends and choose a new group of friends. Not only that, in all of those years, he's not worked a job. He's been living on the goodwill of others who have fed him. This is one problem with social feeding programs that governments provide. I'm not against that. But when people get accustomed to a handout, well, just learn what, see what happened during COVID. Nobody wants to go to work. Why should I go to work if somebody's going to feed me and give me what I need? Why should I put out any effort? Well, this man has not had a job, let's say, in 30 years. 30 years, he's never wondered where the food's going to come from, who's going to make it for him. It just miraculously shows up every day because of the goodwill of people. But if he leaves there, nobody's going to feed him anymore. And not only that, if he leaves there, he's going to have to get a job. He's not had a job in decades. And because technology has changed, he probably can't get a job until he gets a little training and education. And many people say they want to change until they hear what change really means. You want to hear something interesting, Pastor Craig? I preached this two weeks ago at Kenneth Copeland Ministries. On that particular day, who do you think was sitting on the front row? Judges from Texas. (laughs) Do you know what it's like to preach to a whole front row of judges? All judges who had come there for an event. And when the service was over, all those judges formed a circle around me in the back room. And they said, wow, every one of us can say amen to what you said today. As judges, we hear people say all the time they want to change. But when they hear what change means, they don't mean a word of it. They're willing to stay where they are in what they are in rather than go through the pain that change means They're going to have to go through. And Jesus knew this man has not had a job. He's going to need education. He's going to have to choose new friends. He's going to have to get a job. He's going to have to feed himself. And not only that, if he gets up and walks out of that place, he's going to have to renew his mind. Because even if he's well in his body, he thinks like a sick person. He's been sick for 30 years. He talks like a sick person. His entire identity is, I'm a sick person. That's all that he knew. 
And Jesus, knowing the nature of people, said to him, are you really sure? Do you really, do you really want to get your life back again? And I'm going to tell you as a friend that when you cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, change me, change me, change me, Jesus is looking at you. He's taking a penetrating look to see, are these mere words or are you really willing to be changed? It's not just a matter of feeling better. You've got to choose new friends because you can't continue hanging out with the ones that are sick. You can't talk like a sick person. You've got to learn how to talk different. You've got to learn how to think different if Jesus doesn't work in your life. It is a radical, radical change. And that is why Jesus said, are you really sure that you want me to give your life back to you again? He's still asking that question today. And the man answered him. Notice what the next verse says. And the impotent man, the word impotent again, the Greek word, asthenio, the homebound, the frail man, the shut-in, this man that couldn't even walk answered him and said, what? What does it say? If you're reading the King James Version, it says, sir. Sir, and notice the word sir is capitalized. This is the key to this man's miracle. The word sir. In Greek, it is the word kurios with a capital K, which is the word Lord, which means in this moment, this man recognized the authority of Jesus and gave a signal he was willing to do anything that Jesus would tell him to do. He recognized Jesus' authority. And likewise, your life will never be changed permanently unless you recognize Jesus' authority and you're willing to do whatever he tells you to do. We have another example of this in Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, the Bible tells us that Jesus stepped into Peter's boat. How many of you remember that? Do you know how many encounters Peter had had with Jesus to that moment? Four. This was his fifth encounter with Jesus. But in those previous four encounters, he has not repented. He's just enjoyed seeing what Jesus does. He even saw Jesus came into his house and heal his own mother-in-law, and he was not changed. But then one day Jesus stepped into his boat. This is in Luke chapter 5 and said, push out a little from the shore. And Peter said, master, I've been fishing all night. There's no fish here. And then he says, Lord, nevertheless, at thy word, he uses the word Lord, which means he recognized Jesus' authority in that boat. And when he recognized Jesus' authority, then he obeyed and he caught a big catch of fish. You know, Pastor Greg, different things touch different people. Peter was a businessman. He was a businessman. In fact, if you read the Gospels, he had boats and boats and boats. It wasn't just one little boat. He had partners. He was a big businessman making a lot of money. Well, when Jesus came into his own house and healed his mother-in-law, that didn't touch him deeply. He didn't get saved. But when Jesus brought all those fish into his boat, which meant really big money, The heart of that businessman opened up and said, now this is someone with whom I can walk and give my life to. Different things touch different people. And I think it's encouraging that it took Peter five encounters with Christ before his life was changed. So if you know someone you've witnessed to and witnessed to and witnessed to, don't give up. They just need another encounter. They're going to come. The more you preach, you're going to create those eyes in their head for them to see. God's going to give them ears to hear. But the key to this miracle in John chapter 5 was he called Jesus, sir, or he called him Lord. And notice then what he says to Jesus after recognizing Jesus' authority. I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. Well, here you have a typical counseling session. Jesus asks a direct question, and he gets a very convoluted answer. It's just like saying to somebody, would you like to lose weight? They say, well, you know, that's a little bit of a struggle in my life. I've been on this diet, and I've tried this, and I've tried that. And they go through this long, long convoluted answer when you ask a simple question, would you like to lose weight? 
People don't like direct questions because it confronts them. It confronts them. But Jesus didn't say, tell me your healing history. Tell me about your biography, all your time here in the pool of Bethesda. He just said, do you want your life back again? But in a typical counseling session fashion, the impotent man said, sir, I have no man. Well, Pastor Greg, how many people do you know who have said, well, I would be different if he would be different. You know, I probably wouldn't be in this situation if my church had been there for me. Everybody always blames their situation on someone else. And this man says, I have no man. It's all their fault. To put me into the pool, the word put, the word balo, which means to pick me up, balo, and throw like a rock, which means there are sick people between him and the pool. And he says, if somebody would just pick me up and throw me over the heads of all these other people, I would be into the water before anybody else. And then he says, but while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. Or he says, Lord, I'm trying to get to the water. I'm dragging my body to the water's edge and kerplunk. Somebody else is in before me. I always miss the opportunity. Verse 8. Jesus saith unto him. What gave Jesus the right to say to him? Because he called Jesus Lord. When Jesus heard him call him Lord, he knew he had an entrance to speak to this man. And Jesus saith unto him, rise. The word rise, the Greek word egyro, it's the root for the word resurrection. This was like a resurrection. That's how sick this man was. Rise, stand up. And then he said, take up thy bed and walk. Now, when you read this in the Greek text, the language is real direct, And it's real emphatic, which means Jesus did not say, you know, I want you to try something. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but let's just see if you can, you know, wiggle that foot just a little. Let's just, instead, Jesus spoke to him authoritatively and said, get up, pick up that thing you're laying on and walk. And the word walk is the Greek word peripatel, which means get moving. What do you think the people laying there thought about what Jesus said? I could just hear. You know, you can hear people's thoughts. Jesus could hear people's thoughts all the time. Often when I'm preaching, I can hear a thought. And I always respond to it when I'm preaching. I can just imagine those people said to themselves and to each other, How audacious, how rude. Can he not say this is a crippled man? How could you say, how could you even speak to a sick man in that tone of voice? How dare he tell him to get off the mat? He's laying on the mat. How is he going to carry it? The man doesn't have legs to walk. But what does the Bible say happened? And immediately, the Greek word eathos, which means straightway, immediately. The man was made whole, hugies, a better translation, the man got his life back again. He's back on track again for the first time in decades. The man got his life back again and took up his bed and walked, and the same day was the... Sabbath day, yeah, 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 yeah. There are major violations in this miracle. First of all, this is the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath, you're not allowed to pick up anything heavy because it's considered work. Even today, anybody here ever been to Israel? Well, if you ever go to Israel, never, never get on the Sabbath elevator on the Sabbath day. 30-store hotel, 30 floors. The Sabbath day elevator automatically stops on every floor going up and going down because on the Sabbath, it is prohibited to push your finger and to exert energy 
to make that elevator stop where you want. So it just stops automatically. You're not allowed to do anything that represents any kind of work whatsoever. And not only that, on the Sabbath day, you're only allowed to have a Sabbath day walk. A Sabbath day walk, do you know how far that was? It was not very far. It wasn't even 100 yards. It might have been 20 yards. That's as far as you could walk on the Sabbath day. And if you walked further than that, you have violated a very important principle. And the scripture teaches in the Old Testament, if you break either one of those rules, you are to be stoned. So now Jesus says to the man, Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath, pick up your bed. Jesus knew that was a violation. But Jesus is not very religious. And then he said to the man, Peripatel, get moving. Walk, 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 walk. And you're going to read later in this text that when Jesus later found the man, where did Jesus find him? In that temple. That's because the temple was across the street. Not only was he carrying his bed, he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, walking all the way into the temple. And when the Jews saw him carrying his mat on the Sabbath day and walking and walking and walking and walking, they got so upset that the next verse says, The Jews therefore said unto him who was cured... It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy mat. Now, can I just throw in a little rabbit trail for a moment? Do you see in verse 10 where it says, unto him that was cured? This word cured is the Greek word therapeo. Everybody say therapeo. Do you hear another word? You hear the word therapy. That is the primary word used in the Gospels to describe the healing ministry of Jesus. It describes a kind of healing power which only takes place if you cooperate. For example, when Jesus healed the man with a withered hand, he said what? Stretch forth your hand. Do you know how hard that would be if you had a withered hand? I can just see that man's trying as hard as I can. But he had to cooperate. Jesus therapied people. And when they would cooperate with him, that's when the healing power would take root. And that's why often when you see people in prayer lines, they'll say to somebody, do what you couldn't do. Move your leg, hold up your arm. That's a therapy kind of healing. And that's the primary kind of healing that Jesus did. And in this particular case, Jesus didn't just freely heal the man. He made the man do something. He therapied the man. And when you pray for people, It's important for you to remember that you always ask them to do what they could not do. Tell them to do something, to cooperate. And when they begin to put forth that effort, that's when the healing power of God often begins to manifest. But they said to the man that was cured, therapied, it is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy mat, which was the equivalent of saying, today is not a good day to change. Get back on that mat. Go back where you came from. Get back on that mat. A religious spirit is not necessarily connected to religion. A religious spirit is a spirit that is inflexible and is opposed to change. And when you change and you come home to your family who has always known you the way that you have been, they may say to you, who do you think you are? Have you forgotten where you came from? Have you forgotten who we are and that you're one of us? Just get back on that mat. How dare you say you're going to leave here and go somewhere else and make a name for yourself. You're one of us. You'll always be one of us. Just get back on that mat. And that's often why when God does a change in your life, People who've known you for a long time don't rejoice. Your change is like headlights in their eyes revealing that they're still in the same place and in front of them is somebody moving on and rather than rejoice with you and feel the need to change, they may just try to drag you back onto the mat so you stay like them. 
just a religious spirit. Always happens. Always happens when you change. The Jews therefore said unto him that was therapied, it's the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. But he answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up my bed and walk or take up my bed and get moving. Verse 13. And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. But then in verse 14, we find out something wonderful about Jesus. Jesus is the best on follow-up of anybody else. And if Jesus is good on follow-up, we need to follow up on people too. Look at verse 15. Afterwards, Jesus findeth him in the temple. And the word findeth is the Greek word heurisko. The word heurisko, findeth, is the word which describes a very intensive scholarly investigation. Which means Jesus literally said, I heard that man is on the temple premises. I'm not leaving till I find that man. Jesus was walking through the multitude on the temple grounds looking for that man. And the word find, the Greek word heurisko is also where we get the word eureka, which means it was a eureka moment. Jesus was euphoric when he finally saw this man. After searching for him and looking for him, wow, there you are. And notice what Jesus said to him. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. The word behold is the Greek word edu. The word edu is one of the hardest words to translate. There are several really hard words to translate. One is the word behold. One is the word love. One is the word grace. One is the word amen. These are almost not translatable words. The word behold is used all over the Gospels is always the injection into the text expressing what a person feels. For example, a better translation would be, wow, you're made all. When Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. Jesus literally said, wow, wait till you receive what I'm about to give you. When Jesus said in the great commission, He says, behold, I'm with you always to the ends of the age. It was the equivalent of saying, if you go, if you preach, if you do what I have told you to do, wow, will my presence ever be with you, even all the way to the end of the age. That word behold really means wow. And now Jesus is looking at this man. Jesus looks at him, and the Greek could be translated, wow. Wow, you got your life back. Now imagine how impressive it must have been for Jesus to say, wow. And that needs to be the goal for every one of us. That when Jesus looks at me and Jesus looks at you, remembering what you used to be or the struggles or the inferiority that you have dealt with, now you've come out of it, that Jesus looks at you and puts his hands on his hips and says, Wow, that is amazing. Jesus was impressed with what he did in this man's life. Lord, I want you to be impressed with what you've done in my life. Can you all say amen to that? Oh, it's so powerful. And Jesus said, behold, wow, you really got your life back again. Thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon thee. Well, that's a very interesting statement because sin does open the door to sickness. We don't know what opened the door to sickness in this man's life to begin with, but it seems to be an indication here that this man had done something to open a door for this infirmity to come into his life. We find the same thing in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the country of the Gadarenes, and he found a man with a, what kind of spirit? Unclean. That word unclean is a word which is associated with spiritual filth. And there's really a strong signal in that text that that man had opened himself up to something lewd in his thinking. And that's what opened the door 
for that infestation of demons to come into his life. How many of you remember singing when we were kids? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. There's truth to that. And apparently something had opened the door, and now Jesus, in loving compassion, says, let's not get into this mess again. Let's not do this again. And the following verse says, that the man went around telling everybody it was Jesus who made him whole or better translation, it was Jesus who gave me my life back again. I just think that is amazing. That is amazing. Now, how many of you can say Jesus gave you your life back again? How many want Jesus to look at you and say, wow, that is amazing. That's amazing. That's what I think about me. It's amazing. It's okay to be amazed by yourself. I know where I grew up. I know what I did not have. I know the inferiorities I dealt with. And when I look at what God has done in my life, I'm amazed by it. It's a, it's a wow moment for me every time I think that God chose this unlikely person. And I want Jesus to be impressed with what he's done in my life. I'm sure there's also a few people here today who, like this man, say you want to change. And you've even had opportunities to change. But when the rubber hit the road... that's going to require a lot of me. And a lot of people just conclude, you know what? This is not best. Life could be better, but I've learned to live like this, and it's all right. And they just settle for what they have. As long as you're willing to settle, you're never going to change. And that's why, like this man, you have to call Jesus, sir, the Greek word kurios with a capital K, Lord, I'm giving you the right to tell me what to do, and I will do it. And that's what you have to do. Did you get anything out of this today? I enjoyed it. I love talking about Jesus. I want you to put your hand on your heart. I'm going to give this to Pastor Greg, but I want to pray for you. Father, first of all, I thank you for Lake Church, this amazing light in Manford and in this region. I thank you for Pastor Greg and Karen, for their family. Thank you for every person that serves in this church. And Father, I'm thinking right now about people who come here with lameness in their lives. Help us to show them how to transition and get their life back again. Help us to be good at follow-up, Lord, to make sure they're going to walk forward and not get back into that mess again. We really thank you, Jesus. We're so thankful. And right now, with your hand on your heart, I speak to you and I say to any area of your life where you have been lame or infirmed, get up, pick up that thing. It's time for you to get moving again. Make the choice to get moving. Leave it behind. Leave it behind. And walk in Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name, we thank you, Father. Just begin to thank him. Oh, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. The Lord is good. Amen. Well, now we want to give you an opportunity to give to a ministry that's impacting and changing lives all around the world. And uh, so we're going to do that. If the ushers could stand, I will pray a prayer, and then I will sing a song for you as we've done it. Well, I'm just kidding. Well, 
<laughs> and then also, please, go buy the book. Get this book. This is a great book. This is a wonderful book. It will challenge you. It will uh, basically, you know, if you're wanting to make changes in your life, you need to understand that there are dream thieves. There's opposition to everything that God asks you to do. And this gives you the ability to recognize them and overcome them and uh, get to where God desires for you to be. Amen? Father, we just give you praise. We thank you so much for this challenging word. We thank you so much for this ministry. Thank you, Father God, that lives have been transformed by the teaching of the word of God. And we give, we communicate unto those that have given us the word. And we share our gratitude and our thankfulness for what we've received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Go right ahead. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, I don't have a track, so I can't sing a song right now. But, hey, certainly you do not want to hear what I can bring to the table. Amen. But I encourage you, get a hold of, of some of the other books that he has. Get a hold of some of the teaching tapes. Watch his program online. Uh, I believe it will be a great blessing to you. How many have been blessed by the ministry here today? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That was life transforming. Grateful, grateful, grateful for this ministry. Amen. Hallelujah, it's changed my life. And I tell you, if, you can't, if you've never had, I know we've sold this book out several times, but it is Dressed to Kill. And that book changed my life. I would put it in the top five books that I've ever read. It is, it is incredible. The best, most balanced teaching on spiritual warfare that you will ever hear and read so be sure and get a copy of that. Uh, hopefully we can get some in the bookstore so we can make those available to you. Amen? Well, it has been good to be together. Thank you so much for coming out. I believe that this is a moment in which we're going to go from this place into a new place. Amen? I just sense that by the Spirit of the Lord. I just sense that. God has just really breathed on 2023 for us. And I believe that we're headed in the right direction to see some wonderful things. Amen? Hallelujah. God bless you. Now, if you need prayer, we're going to have the ministers that are going to be up here on the front. They're there to help you if you need to be born again, if you need to recommit your life to the Lord, if you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, if you need healing in your body or you need deliverance in your life. These ministers are here to equip and help you with what you need. Don't come in, don't go out the same way you came in. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.